0: hello unfiltered friends today we have on k.l randis novelist podcaster wife mother overall survivor and badass she is currently fighting through cancer but through the whole process she remains an inspiration and has an incredible sense of humor she is the epitome of just keep swimming If this podcast moves you, make sure you reach out to her and let her know the impact that she has made on you. And without further ado, here is K.L. Randis. Welcome to the Unfiltered Friends Podcast. Before we introduce you to our next friend, I want you to take a moment to think about everything that led you to where you are right now. Do you see how strong you are? Do you see how great your story is? I hope you do, and I hope you learn great lessons and get inspired by our next friend's story on the Unfiltered Friends podcast. So, how's it going? How are you doing? All things considered,
1: <laughs> great except the cancer. Yeah, you know? yeah, the
0: whole cancer thing. <laughs> I love that we're I love that we're kicking it off that way because. Um, Anyone that I have been friends with who has had cancer has that type of humor. Yeah, Um, it's just like (laughs) it's kind of like you are. You have the cancer, so it's like why talk about it like it's not a thing, you know? Like
1: (laughs) it's there, so let's just address it right out of the gate. You know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So tell people who you are a little bit about your story, and then we'll we'll dive in.
1: Okay, so. I go by the pen name Kale Randis. My name is Kelly, mm-hmm. but um, I coined that pen name because I specifically wanted to appeal to not just like male readership or female readership or whatever, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, predominantly male authors sell more books. So really? It was, like completely a marketing decision. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Back when I like wrote my first book. So I'm the author of Spilled Milk, which is based on a true story. And if anything comes across where my voice is like super, whatever, just let me know. And I can repeat things too. Cause I'm yeah. the cancer. It's well, um, yeah.
0: Why don't we just address that right out right of out yeah, the gate? Like what's that. going on with your voice?
1: Okay. So my cancer is predominantly in my chest area, which mm-hmm. I found out at my last appointment, your vocal cords actually run down mm-hmm. and they come up in your chest like this, which I didn't know that. Huh. So, because my cancer is like predominantly on the lymph nodes in my chest, around my heart and my lungs, it's like pressing on my vocal cords. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really hard to get my voice out there. Like I have to like really push it to get my voice enunciated and out there.
0: Yeah. So I guess my question is with you experiencing like that kind of struggle in this moment, why are you doing a podcast? Why is this important to you?
1: So I haven't done a podcast interview in over a year. And uh, I recently just finished up my last round of chemo. Mm -hmm. And we found out that the chemo is not working. So we are trying to come up with a new treatment plan moving forward. And I think the most humbling part of this entire journey since I was diagnosed back in February has been to really just take advantage of everything that is like kind of put in front of me Mm -hmm. Um, for a really long time. I either wouldn't do podcast interviews um, because my family, because of my circumstances of my based on a true story book mm-hmm. um, is based on my own true story of child abuse growing up, and my abuser was recently let out of jail mm. after serving the full sixteen year sentence. So we don't tell people where we're living. Um, we can count on two hands like how many people actually know where we live. Yeah. So a part of that has been really hard to like do public speaking events or like tell people where we are or do podcast interviews because a lot of that is like kind of location based. Mm. Um, So this is perfect because I get a chance to talk to people digitally, but I just feel like I want to leave more of a mark in the world um, because there's a chance I may not be in it for so many years down the road. And I just want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to, you know, just kind of be here when Mm. I'm here presently.
0: And usually uh, when I encounter people who have that attitude about it, they last much, much longer than they ever anticipated. So you seem like one of those stubborn types that will stick around for a while.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely going to fight for it for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was telling you, like, I, I went through like two and a half, three years of your posts and it was just like, what? Okay. Now, now this is happening. Okay. Oh, now she has cancer. And it's just like, man like it it felt like the hits just kind of like kept coming but you kept going yeah. has that always been an aspect of your personality
1: yeah definitely i mean i grew up i'm one of seven children so i grew up in a very large family and that is like predominantly what my book is based on is like my upbringing because we did grow up in a sexually abusive home a physically abusive home emotionally abusive home so that's um i penned the novel because i couldn't find any literature on what it was like for a child to testify against a parent in court and Mm. what that looks like. And what that whole process looks like, not just during it, but like after like how it affects the family model and how it affects your own life and stuff. So I've always had this glass half full kind of attitude. I'm like, yo, I'm the oldest girl in my family. So I always kind of took on the role of like mother hen to all my other Mm. siblings. And I think just naturally for me, it's like, okay, what are we going to do to like get get past this? And what are we going to do to overcome this? Because I didn't really have the luxury of like parents coming to save me or anybody coming to save me when things hit the fan.
0: So it's always
1: kind of fallen on my own shoulders. So like I'm pretty good at like adapting. Mm. Um but you're right. I mean, if you went back two and a half years of my past life,
0: that's a lot of baggage. It's a lot, it's a <laughs> lot like, but that's exactly why I I wanted to talk to you because these are the stories like some of the, th- so I use Patreon to kind of crowdfund the podcast to, so that I can do it. And a yep. lot of people go w- went through your social media and they're like, one of the questions had to do with like, how do you just keep swimming? That's something I say all the time. you know, just keep swimming, yeah. like from finding Nemo. Yeah. And it's just like the fact that you're able to do that through the course of all the layers that we are gonna try and cover as much of in the in the time that we have, yeah. like it if it seems like because you were the eldest, Um, I mean, you had a choice though. You had a choice in my, course,
1: everybody has a choice really, you know,
0: you could have laid down and, and, but you decided to, to stand up. Do you feel like maybe it made you grow up way faster than you would have?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, being one of seven kids, just naturally, like you have to fight for things, right? Like you're Mm -hmm. one of seven kids, like you're fighting for attention. You're fighting for like the last cookie that's there. You're fighting for, you know, really everything. So, um, I think in my situation, because I had the father that I had, quote, and I had the mother that I had, quote. Um, she was addicted to opioids. So mm-hmm. it didn't help the situation. Uh, so I really was like the mother in my situation growing up. So it wasn't, it was actually less based, if I'm being honest, on choice at that point mm-hmm. when I was growing up, and more based on like survival and, you know, what are we gonna eat and how am I gonna like help my brothers like just have like normal hygiene stuff like taking baths and like taking care of them and making sure that like we had enough to eat and that sort of thing
0: yeah so let's get let's get into a little bit of the details of the family dynamic i mean you're you have your book you know spilled milk and um it seems like the relationship with both i mean it seems like the relation the i mean it's i haven't read the book but it seems like it's it's based on real life but more uh, uh but fictional you know like it's your experience but it's not you're not specifically talking about you it's a it's a work of quote unquote fiction
1: fiction right so the reason why that i wrote it that way was because of my siblings um i Mm. wanted to give them the opportunity to have the same space that i had in healing and going through therapy and like getting through everything so i didn't want anybody who knew my family personally to outwardly be able to like pinpoint. Oh, that's definitely your brother. Or that's definitely your sister. Mm. So I changed a lot of names, and I like kind of like combined personalities of like one sibling with another one, just so that it was less easy for people to guess who they were. Yeah. Uh, but the like the majority of the book is based on like a hundred percent facts.
0: Yeah. So so can you tell me a bit about what what you say in that book, like your experience that you display in that book? Because it it really seemed to. Uh, touch a lot of people. It was really helpful for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. So I think what a lot of people really appreciate from it is I'm not just, I'm not talking about the abuse so much. So it's, I specifically wrote it with people, other people in mind that may be triggered by reading stuff that's like about abuse. So the best example that I can give you is spilled milk has replaced In colleges and in high schools, the book uh, Child Called It. Mm -hmm. It's a book about like gross abuse, gross child abuse. Um, But the book heavily focuses on the abuse itself Mm. and not necessarily like what that child did or what that looks like or how they got justice or, you know, any of that stuff. And I think if we're going to be telling kids all around the world, You know, if something happens to you, tell an adult or tell a teacher or tell somebody. We also need to be able to tell them what that looks like when they have to press charges against their abuser or what that looks like when we're sending a child up on the stand to go testify, especially when it's a parent. So I just wanted something to be out there that people could not just relate to because it's maybe something they went through, but Mm -hmm. something that they could grow from. In their own experience and like what is going on in their in their own specific situation
0: are you comfortable talking about what happened in in yeah, real so, life uh yeah go ahead
1: yeah i mean i was sexually abused um from the time i could remember so i'm just going to say five because that's about the time that i can like really remember it happening mm-hmm. um so from the time that i was five until my family located relocated up to pennsylvania because i was originally born in new york um and Essentially, we were isolated from every family member that we had, and um, it kind of just got like progressively worse when we moved to Pennsylvania. Um, I was raped by my father, and that is something that a lot of people are super uncomfortable hearing because you're not just dealing with like it being a family member, but we're talking about incest and we're talking about it being somebody who's supposed to be really a protector of their children instead of being the abuser. Uh, But more often than not, the abuser is somebody that the family member knows. Mm. And I think that my goal really in all of this is to kind of just help shine light on that. And like, we're not talking about like, you know, the law and order crime show where it's like in this back alley that somebody jumps out and grabs you. But it's like the uncle who knows that the five-year-old girl really, really loves popsicles and he's going to use that to his advantage Mm. or the aunt that knows that johnny really likes to run around without his shirt on and they make it a really fun game so just really anything i can do to like draw awareness of that part of it it's an uncomfortable
0: the it's like the group the grooming part of it
1: yeah yeah yeah, and the grooming part of it so like it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to hear um but that's the reality and that's really the truth of a lot of cases of sexual abuse
0: it's always it's always it's it's never in my experience, any of the stories I heard, it's always someone that is in their household or close to them. And they basically have their trust in that person taking advantage of which allows them access to that child, um, sometimes unsupervised, because, you know, why wouldn't you trust the child with their father or their uncle or their aunt, you know, because right their family. And who,
1: be- and who better to know that child so well? that they know the links that they'll go to yeah. to do a certain thing for that person. So it's like, they, they they know their favorite candies. They know what they do and don't like, they know the limitations of like what they can get away with before they would maybe tell a parent. Yeah. So it's, it's very important that we do have these kinds of discussions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm somebody that, I mean, you, you kind of, you see my content to some degree. I talk about uncomfortable stuff, but if we don't talk about it, um, people just kind of end up suffering in silence. Did you, Did you, when the book took off for you and you started to get feedback from people, did you get a lot of feedback like that where people are like, I've never talked about this and you gave me, you empowered me to speak on it?
1: Yeah. So almost immediately I received feedback because, um, well, when I was in court, people at school, at high school had found out what was going on in my situation. And that's like a whole nother story, but basically people at the front office had kids in my grade. And their parents told them like what was going on in my situation because Mm -hmm. I was like, this is so much school. And I was constantly being pulled out of school for things because of court and stuff. So almost immediately I found that people were coming up to me, um, guys and girls to tell me their story or tell me their situation to like potentially help them find a resource where they could go get help. Mm -hmm. Um, but especially afterwards, I mean, my (laughs) inbox is played on a daily basis. Whether it's email or direct messages like on Instagram or TikTok, of people who either just don't know what to do or they just need to vent that it happened to them because Mm -hmm. they've never told anybody else in their lives. And I so much appreciate that people are able to like trust me with that information and tell me stuff like that because I just know how much of a burning, like, you know, thing it is to keep inside of you all the time.
0: Is there a particular uh, interaction with someone you impacted that like sticks out in your mind where they told you how they how your book uh, and your voice affected them?
1: Yeah. So there is this girl who actually came to like a meet and greet. I was doing a speaking event um, and they showed up and she had she she had couldn't have been older than 15 years old, maybe like 14, 15 years old. And she comes up to me and she's got my book. And she's like, I've read your book like five times. I love you so much. Can you please sign my book? And she has this woman standing next to her. And I'm just thinking it's her mom or like, you know, her guardian that is bringing her there. And she told me that reading my book helped her gain the confidence to tell on her abuser, who happened to be her mother's boyfriend at the time. And the mother, instead of taking the daughter's side, kicked her out and was basically like, I don't believe you. He would never do that. So she was there because she was in the foster care system because her mother basically said like, I'm choosing him over you. So like, here you go. So situations like that can and do happen as well. Like I am the exception to the rule where I told somebody finally, and I was believed and people said, okay, like, we're going to, we're going to fight for justice here and we're going to do the right thing. and We're going to breathe to the police and whatever. But I do also know that that is not the situation every time, and that can be really sad too.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's not the first time I've heard that either. Actually, one of my friends, who was one of the first interviews I ever did, said the same thing about the the parent choosing the abuser. Why is that? I mean, with your understanding, why? Why? Why do people do that?
1: I think there's a lot of things going on. I think like financially. Um, some people like in my mom's situation, she was addicted to drugs. So if you take away the breadwinner, of course, you're going to take away all of the access to that. You're going to take away access to maybe materialistic things that they like, or that they like to do, or a certain kind of lifestyle that they like. Um, there are a lot of people who just like fall in love quote Mm -hmm. with a new person and they try so hard to like impress them that they don't want anything to come between them. Uh, there's really a lot of different scenarios. Um, All of them are terrible in which, you know, a a survivor or victim is not believed. Excuse me, but... (laughs) It's
0: okay. Yeah, take your time.
1: (laughs) Um, But basically it boils down to, you know, a parent having some other priority over their child, which as a mother now that kills me because there is no priority that should be higher than your children when it comes to something like
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I've always felt. It's like uh, it uh, to to people who are like who are not in it, my, my brain just doesn't compute uh, like yeah. how that will be even a possibility.
1: Yeah. My husband was actually just like you so like his family growing up was like super vanilla the worst thing that happened to him growing up was his parents got divorced, but even that wasn't a bad thing because they both got remarried and they're so happy. Yeah, So it's like a good ending for them. You know what I mean? Like he could not for the longest time wrap his head around how I was treated or what was going on in my home. And I think that's another discussion that Mm. a lot of people like, they're like, well, how can you sit there and say like, you know, you were 15 years old. Like, how did you not know that your father doing this was like not normal, but it's like the, the kind of example that I like to give people is like, just imagine like just drinking water. Like if somebody were to come up to you and tell you that drinking water is in fact illegal and you've been doing it your entire life, yeah, you wouldn't like, you wouldn't be like, you'd be like, Oh my God. Like, what do you mean drinking water is illegal? Like I've been doing this since I was born. Like, this is what I was taught to do. This is what my family has taught me is an acceptable form of getting hydration. Like you wouldn't even think twice about it, but when it comes to sexual abuse it's like well why and we we tend to people tend to fall on the side of well why did the victim not come forward versus talking about the abuser and saying why did the abuser do this
0: it's so it's so common um i so i talked i've talked about it before i was um i've experienced quite a bit of sexual assault um and i was drugged and raped in college by a woman I'm sorry and Yeah. I mean, yeah, it wasn't a good time. (laughs) I'm going to be honest, Yeah, but like what, what I found was, is, you know, you say something like that. And in my brain, I expect people to be supportive, but what I found was a lot of people. Questioning, well, if you know, how, how, how did you have an erection? Um, why didn't you go to the police? And the thing is, like, I did go to the police and they laughed at me and said, Well, at least you got laid because men don't get raped. So it's just yeah. like, I think because, like, your husband, I grew up in like the most loving household with like the most vanilla parents, like, so leave it to Beaver. It was wonderful that, like, I can't even grasp some of the behaviors that I see online and you are so vulnerable and open about your experiences i mean like researching you was was lengthy because your captions are really long and i want to make because you're giving a really important message have you always been that like open and vulnerable like is it's hard to do that online especially with things that are so triggering. Like when I talked about it, what I just told you on TikTok, um, I had a backlash from women saying like, well, now you know what it feels like to be a woman or that it didn't happen to me enough for them to care, um, right. which made me immediately want to recoil and never talk about it again. Have you had moments yeah. like that? Um, yeah. How do you fight through those those moments where you kind of focus on the purpose of what you're saying rather than the reaction and how painful it is for you personally?
1: That's a great question. Uh, so I have received like my my journey through all of this, and like my book came out nine years ago. So it's been a number one bestseller for nine years, which has a story in it and of itself. Because publishers told me that nobody would want to read a book about a child who was sexually abused, which turned out to be not the case. A lot of people want to read that, <laughs> yeah, not because like they're interested in that subject matter, but they're interested in like the aftermath. But I have had people message me, um, you know, on the internet, you know, behind a screen. To say, you know, how could you say this about your father, and how could you, how could you put this much about yourself out there, and like that's so cringy, and I would never do that, and I would never talk about this stuff. And for me, I think the value of having just even one person message me to say, you know, thank you for writing this. It got me to tell my abuser, or this is the stage that I'm at in my in my, in my prosecution of my abuser, mm-hmm. like. Completely just voids anything, any of that negative stuff. Yeah. It is really hard to overlook, especially because you've already been victimized. So you don't want to be victimized again by people that you don't know and that don't really understand your situation. But at the same time, you want to be able to be an open book for people that maybe don't have the support system that I did have going through that initially to just make sure that they're able to get the justice that they need and that they deserve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, man. And I feel like it's getting more and more intense online with like, I think people don't think about you when they say stuff like that. They're thinking about themselves. And Absolutely. it's like, it, it it's not really the same application. You didn't have the same father that they did. So how are they even comparing? Right. But what I noticed with the backlash when it came to what I was talking about is, and you have a background in Psychology, correct? Yes, I I
1: have a bachelor's in psychology.
0: Right. So, like, I I, I don't, but I've spent a lot of time trying to understand that. And I've been through quite a bit of therapy. And I just try to understand, try to be understanding that that person has so much trauma within themselves that they struggle to see it in somebody else. So it's almost like they attack it because they identify with it. Does that sound accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Either that or like they themselves have been victimized. And yeah. they didn't even receive the justice that they thought they deserved or needed. And they're angry about it, as they should be. Like, I've had people who will message me and be like, well, that's really great for you. But like I told on my abuser and nobody believed me and the police didn't do anything. And, you know, children in you didn't get involved or they closed my case. So there is some resentment there for some people as well. Yeah. You know, which can be hard to overcome because you don't always get the justice that you think that you're going to get. And I think a lot of that has to do with like what we see on television mm. and how like open and closed it is. And it's like, oh, like the person comes forward and they tell them their person, they tell them their abuser and they go through this court and like it's this whole big thing. My, my trial personally took over a year, mm. then it was a hung jury. So we had to go through the whole process all over again because the jury could not come to a decision whether or not he was guilty or not guilty. So we had to go through the whole entire thing all over again to get our guilty verdict. And the reason why we did was because there was one juror who had a question. And as a juror, you can't just raise your hand and be like, hey, I have a question. Like, can you clear this up for me? This isn't making sense. So that person in good conscience could not say he was guilty. So they met me outside of the courthouse when my trial was over, when they gave me the home jury. And like they were all sobbing, all 12 of them. And they were like, I'm so sorry. Like we couldn't convict him, but we want to sit down with the DA and we want to tell him what questions to ask or what things that need like clarification to make sure the next time that you go at this, he's put away and he's guilty or whatever. And that's exactly what they did.
0: That's incredible. I've never heard a story like that before. I, I can imagine that's an uncommon occurrence for people. Very
1: uncommon occurrence. Yes. So like the DA's office, like we had the hung jury. I was rushed up to the DA's office and all of a sudden like the secretary's like knocking on the door and like, I'm crying because I'm not really understanding what's going on at the time because I don't really know what a hung jury is. And she's like, we have a situation and she's like, what's going on? Like, what could be more important than what I'm doing right now? Like I'm kind of dealing with, you know, basically the client who's really upset right now. And she said the entire jury is standing outside the courthouse. They won't leave until she comes out because they want to talk to her. And she's like, in like the 30 years she was doing that, she's never seen something like that. Like they were so insistent on making sure that the DA said the right things and clarified the right things because they felt in their hearts, he was guilty, but like on paper, Mm -hmm. different. And in a courthouse it's different. You have to abide by, what the law says makes somebody guilty. It doesn't matter what you feel. It's not about your opinion. It's about what they can like legally prove in court. So once we were able to clarify certain things, and in my situation, it was literally a matter of, they thought that like my grandma was in the room during one of the times. And it wasn't clarified because like, there was like a date mix up, like with the hung jury. It was like, They thought she was like up visiting the one time, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't that time. It was a separate time that we were talking about. But again, they can't raise their hand and be like, hey, can you clarify? Was (laughs) the first time your grandma was there or the second time your grandma was there? Like, you know, when when did this happen?
0: So the evidence must have been like pretty damning then.
1: Yeah. And that's another thing too, is like a lot of people expect DNA and they want, you know, video evidence or they want like all these like high profile things that you see on like a show like Law and Order. And in my case, it was a matter of my testimony and testimony people like um, who had either picked me up either just before or just after like something had happened then just before, but like, or just after something had happened, it was from like aunts and uncles who had seen the way that he had talked to me or treated me. It was like my ex-boyfriend's mom who had picked me up from school the, the, you know, the day after something had happened. And like, she kind of saw my demeanor and saw the way that I was acting and stuff. So it wasn't like, hey, we've got all this DNA evidence and we can like for sure put them away because that's usually not the way that it works.
0: No, because a lot of times there's so much shame surrounding it or like you were a child. So like, yeah. you, how do you even know the process to do something like that? And if you don't gather it right yes. away, then, then the evidence is not there. How old were you when you were going through this trial?
1: So I was in high school, mm-hmm. um, which was really hard because... At the time, I was like, obviously, like just dealing with general high school drama, which Mm -hmm. in and of itself is like insane. Can't imagine like what kids are going through like today with high school. But so I was already just dealing with like normal high school drama stuff. And while being in high school, the hardest part for me was I lived in a very rural Pennsylvania town. Mm -hmm. So everybody knew everybody's situation and like it's just very small town. So what wound up happening in my scenario was there were parents in the front office who knew me, who they knew that their kids like were friends with me and just like blatantly told them what was going on, like in my situation. So like I had people coming up to me that like, I didn't really know. And they're like, Hey, like if you need a place to stay, which is really nice of them, like if you need a place to stay, or you need like a to have a sleepover, if you need to talk about anything, you know, just let me know and we can talk about it. But that was like really embarrassing for me because I hadn't even been able to tell classmates, you know, hey, this is what's going on. And I've got people coming up to me that like, I don't really know that well, kind of like acquaintances. And they're like, hey, you know, this is what's going on in your family. And I know this because my, my parent told me that, you know, works in the front office um, because we had to, we had a PFA, which is a protection from abuse order um, that we got issued from the court. So if he were to show up at the school, we didn't want, you know, him to be able to take anybody out of school, obviously like me or any of my siblings. So they had to be aware of what was going on. Um, but it kind of stunk because mm-hmm. you know, now all these people know what my situation is sort of.
0: Yeah. Did you have to, did you testify at any point during this case? Yeah. So, so I
1: was the only one of my siblings who testified.
0: Describe, I mean, was your, your father sitting there while you were doing it?
1: Yeah. Describe so, that or
0: describe what that's like. Cause I can imagine that was a really tough point.
1: Yeah. It was really hard. So when you testify, you have to point out in open court, who your abuser is, because you have to be able to identify who the person is that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So not only do you have to like talk in front of them about everything that they did to you, but you also have to like look at them and point at them and be like, hey, that's the person that did this. In my situation, I had the most amazing victim advocate, which is a person who works at the courthouse and helps people through things like this. And she was a child advocate and she would sit on his side. So it's kind of like a wedding when you go into a courtroom and it's people who are like in favor of this person. And then people who are in favor of this person on this side. So she would sit directly behind him when we had court, when I would have to talk to the the defense attorney or like have to direct anything in that direction. So that I could directly look at her instead of looking at him when I was talking.
0: Yeah. That must've been really intense. Okay, so I want to shift a little bit because your relationship with your husband is adorable. Um, I'm, I'm literally obsessed with it. Um, but it it seemed like it it took him. I mean, obviously, with the history that you have, um, it took. It seems like it takes you a while to be able to trust someone. Maybe even, especially someone a, a man. Um, yeah. It seemed like you kind of like he had to kind of run the gauntlet with you a little bit before he got in there. Um, But he eventually got there. So was it, was it like initial, like, right when you met him, was it like, I'm attracted to him or do you just kind of start like back and then they have to earn their way in or is it a mix of both?
1: So I was immediately attracted to him Mm -hmm. and we had a mutual friend that kind of introduced us.
0: And you were 17 when you guys met? I was
1: 17. So actually as of this year, because we were 17 when we first met and I just turned 35 this year, Mm -hmm. we will actually be together this year. Longer with each other than we ever have been. Oh, each other, which is really cool. I That's think. so cool. Yeah. So, um, I made him wait a really long time. Like, I, I'm i for six now that,
0: years like, is what I'm reading. Yeah. was like six it was years. Like, damn, he must have been sure about you. Yeah. It was like
1: six, seven years before I would marry him. And You know, he was like super patient and I'm the kind of person now as an adult still that I'm not going to take you for what your words are. I'm going to take you for what your actions are Mm -hmm. clearly because I have got some issues that I need to like, you know, work through there. And he just day by day has constantly shown me that like he is there and he's the person and he's not going to screw this up. And, you know, he really showed up in ways that I didn't know that a human being could show up for another person.
0: Can you tell me what, can you give me an example?
1: Yeah, I mean, even just like, even just with being diagnosed with cancer, when he was in the hospital with me, like we joke about it now, but it was really awful. But being in the hospital bed, like I had a chest tube coming out of my left side. I had another tube that was for my lungs because I wound up getting basically air underneath my skin from the surgery. Mm. So they had to put another tube to drain the air that was from that. So I've got two tubes coming out of me. I have cancer, I'm on like super crazy medications because of the pain because of that. So, like when I would have to go to the bathroom, he would have to pick up all of this like stuff. Like he had these two boxes of things, and he had like the IV thing that he would have to drag in with us. I'm completely naked. I get in there and I'm like, oh my God. And he's like, Why? And I'm like, I have to poop. Like, I don't know <laughs> what to tell you, but like, like, like you did not love me before, like you definitely do now, because like there is no sugarcoating anything no. that's going on in our lives right now. Like it was so raw, but like so beautiful looking back on it because it's like, not, not the poopy thing, obviously, but Hey, just in general, no, 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 like- your poop is beautiful. Okay. <laughs> you
0: have beautiful poop. Continue.
1: Just, just the love that I, sh- that I saw from him with handling the way that I had to be treated so fragilely at mm-hmm. that time. was just like amazing to really see in another person.
0: Uh, had you had much d- dating exp- I mean, you met so young, had you had much dating experience before him or no?
1: It didn't really. So I had an ex-boyfriend whose his mom. Well, it was somebody that I was very close to. She was like the backbone of my support system when I was going through court. So like I will forever be indebted to her and her family and all of that. Like that was just like a great situation to have her support and to have his family support at the time. Um, But that was kind of it. I dated here and there between the ex-boyfriend and him, but not really because I was 17 and Mm -hmm. due to this situation that was going on in my family, like it wasn't really the kind of situation where like you bring a boyfriend home because of my family. So there wasn't a whole lot of dating experience. And honestly, on his side too, he had had a couple of dates with people, like not really super serious with anybody. I was really his first serious relationship. So the fact that we like, Together, I think, was surprising to a lot of people because we were so young and because we had like kind of the odds against us in terms of like not having a lot of experience and like you don't really know what you want. This is kind of what we heard from other people you know, you don't really know what you want and you don't, you know, you're probably not going to marry this person because you're only 17. So you know, we kind of had to deal with that. But why do why day, do people do that?
0: Like, why? No. <laughs> I think it's because they're unhappy and they don't like, it's the crab in the bucket thing. Have you, have you heard this analogy, the crabs Crabbit. in a bucket? No. So there's a bunch of crabs in a bucket and one starts to try to crawl out. And the natural instinct of the crabs in that bucket is to grab that crab and bring them back down into the bucket with everyone else. And I think that's a lot of the experience that you see, like when people kind of disparage something that you're experiencing personally, is they don't wanna see you leave the bucket, they want you to be there in the misery with them. And it's just like, even if it's true, just like mind your own business. You ever think about that? Like I'm in this relationship now, why are you crapping on it (laughs) to me? It doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, and honestly, I'm 35 years old and and to be fair, I'll, I'll give you a, a piece of commentary that my own aunt literally just told me last week and she was up visiting and she was like, she's like, listen, cause she, I haven't visited with her in a while. So it's been some time and she came because I have cancer and I'm having surgery next week. And she just wanted to show up to just show her support. But she was like, you know, I see your stuff on Instagram with your husband. And I was like, Kind of rolling my eyes, like, okay, Marcus is a great guy. And she knows he's a really good guy because she's met him several times and she knows who he is. But she showed up and saw him in action to see like what he's doing for my family right now because I have cancer and just like everything that he's doing for everybody. Like, you know, he's cooking everything and he's got our two kids to take care of, and he's got me to take care of, and he's got himself to take care of, really. Yeah. And she was like, I kind of rolled my eyes at like stuff that you post. She's like, but it's true. She's like he really is the way that you depict him. Yeah. You know, on social media and I think that's hard for a lot of people too because we do live in a world where like their Instagram life is not their real life and it's this whole other thing with like social media portraying something that's maybe not really there but he really is like the real deal which is great.
0: Yeah. I wish I like, I understand why people get to that point where they don't believe something wonderful when they see it because they've had a lot of either poor experiences or they have not experienced. It's kind of like me looking at some of the stuff that other people do and it being mind blowing because it's so like outside of anything I could fathom. It's the same way in the positive direction as well. Like, and I run into that a lot because, you know, my audience is mostly women. I talk about mental health. I talk about dating and they're like, well, you don't exist. And I was like, well, I'm here. I don't know what to tell you. Um, it just it is what it is. Has he ever, like, struggled with people questioning him about his legitimacy, or did he just kind of ignore it and focus on you and the fam?
1: He did when we first started dating. And I think initially it came from like a good place because I had some aunts in my family, and like even my mom, honestly, that basically told me he was not worth me dating because he didn't want to go to college. And it's like, But you realize he doesn't want to go to college because we were literally living on our own when we were 17. When we met, we were both homeless. I was living out of my car. He was living out of a hotel with his mom and his brother. And what was funny about us first dating was neither one of us would say, hey, do you want to come back to my house and hang out? Because neither one of us had a freaking house to go hang out at.
0: Do you want to sit in the car with me? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. You want to sit in my car with me? Like, you know, so like we would go to movies and we'd hang out at our friends' houses and stuff. But, um, it's just interesting because like I did have family members that were like, you know, he's not good enough for you, but he was doing things because of me or for me that they just like either didn't want to see or didn't want to recognize. Like he's putting himself aside for a minute. And then when it came time for me to do that for him, I did. He wanted to be a truck driver his entire life. Like he wanted to drive like 18 wheelers and, he had to go get his CDL and he had to go over the road for a while. And he did that for, for a very long time, like until we had children. And that was something that I was able to support him in because he was able to support me when I was going through college. So it's gotta mm-hmm. be a two-way street, you know?
0: It's so interesting because I was homeless and I was a truck driver. So like, I'm really like, connecting with a lot of things that you're saying. I'm okay. curious, I'm curious, like if you, like we both seem to be doing, We're not, we're both not homeless now. We're doing better than we were back then. We're doing okay. Yeah. But it seems like sometimes I look back at that time with like a bit of nostalgia as like as not fun as it was being homeless. um, It was a much simpler time. Do you ever, do you ever have that?
1: Yes. And we have that with like, we talk about it all the time. Like we talk about our very first apartment was a trailer and or mobile home, whatever you want to call it. Like we just call it a trailer because this is what it was called in our area. But um, so we lived in this trailer and it was like, we literally picked up a couch on the side of the road. I would never do that now. Like with this, especially with COVID and stuff, like, what? I would never take a couch on the side of the road ever. And no. in my house, but we did because we had no money and it was, it was there and it was free and we took it. And you know, there were times that like we had to really bundle up because we had a tank outside of our trailer that we had to fill with oil to heat our trailer. Wow. And we just didn't have the money to do it. So like, it just turned off and it's like, okay, like, when are we going to get the money to fill this again? So it was simpler, but harder at the same time.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think if I had to choose uh, being broken, homeless and the opposite of that, I would choose where I am now. Um, but yeah. there was, but I was, I was less worried about things back then. Cause I think, and I'm sure this probably um, was the same for you when you got your cancer diagnosis, when you start to really recognize what is important, you stop worrying about a lot of the things that are, not as central to what's important yes. to you.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um so okay, so you you got married at like 23, which I guess is normal? I guess it's not normal now.
1: It's a little younger. I mean, I don't know. And is that considered young now? It depends to be on like,
0: It depends on where you are.
1: Yeah, I think it depends on like your situation. Like we got married at 23. Um we eloped because we did not want to honestly we didn't want to put the money out for a wedding
0: we it's a scam
1: it's
0: <laughs> <laughs> that much money for a wedding we is it. a scam like and i don't want to if i ever get married i don't want a registry i would want a honey fund i don't yeah. need 40 dollars champagne flutes that we'll probably never use i want to go do something fun with my partner i just got married to right
1: Exactly. So we grew up obviously very poorly. Both of our families came came from poor upbringing. So both me and my husband at least had that in common, where we kind of grew up poor. And then we were homeless when we met. And then we really built something of ourselves over the course of that time. And we just didn't want to throw the money at a wedding. We wanted to throw the money at a house. We wanted to throw money at other things that were important to us. So literally for our anniversary of the one year, I remember Mark calls me and he's like, Hey, like, what do you want to do for anniversary? I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, how about we get married? And I was like, okay, (laughs) sure. So we went to the courthouse because in Pennsylvania, you have to wait. I think it was like 48 hours from the time that you submit for your marriage license to the time you actually get married. There's like a waiting period. So we like got to the courthouse and we made sure that we were able to do it on our actual anniversary. And we told a couple of people, 48 hours before we got married. And we're like, Hey, like, this is what we're doing. If you would like to show up, that would be great. So we had, I think maybe 20 people there. It was like in a backyard wedding ceremony that we had. And it was like the most beautiful, intimate, special thing to me. And I would never change it for the world. And I don't know. I think, I don't know if that's like a a generational thing or an age thing for like when I was like going through that, but I feel like not a whole lot of people elope anymore. And not a whole lot of people like it's, it is more about the wedding or it is more about like the after, you know, relationship and it is like the relationship itself. And that's kind of what we wanted to focus on. Not to say that if you don't have a huge wedding and the means to do it, freaking go for it. Cause my cousin had a beautiful wedding. Like it was so lavish and it was like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But I was like, we can't do this. So like, let's just do what's important to us. And that's what we did. Our, our wedding cake was a bunch of Oreos (laughs) <laughs> just stacked in a big circle up to the top. Like we opened up two packages of Oreos and we just stacked them up in a big cake style thing. And like that was our wedding cake. And it was big. it's like memories like that that we just like really like to hold on
0: to. Yeah, that's kind of what I was talking about. Like the, all that stuff while it's like cool and fun, it's not really central to what is important. Like to the to you two as a couple. Um, okay, so you uh, you get married at twenty three. You've had, you've had two kids at this point, um, not at 23 l- yeah. later, later after 25, <laughs> 25. <yeah. laughs> um, in looking at like your, your timeline, um, can you talk about the up and moving to an island thing? Yeah. It seems, it re- seems so like s- sudden, but I'm sure it was a little bit more planned or maybe it was sudden. I don't know, but it was like, we're moving to an island. Bye. Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. So there were a lot of things in play there. So my mom died two years ago and coming up, I was the executor of her estate when she died. And I think the reason why she did that was because she knew financially, I needed nothing from her materialistically. I needed nothing from her. So I think she knew in some way that I would be like the most unbiased person in terms of splitting up the estate mm-hmm. because I wanted nothing from her. So in dealing with all of that, I found out because I did have a very strange relationship with my mom. I didn't really bring my kids around her. Um, I didn't really know that she was like super sick until she was super sick. And then it was like, okay, now she's like really super sick. And she's got like six months to live. So
0: what? what, why was the relationship strained? Like, how was it strained?
1: It was my own boundaries that I set with her Mm. that made it that way. And it was just years of therapy that I went through that made me not want to Like have my kids be exposed to certain things on my family side, because I had done so many years of therapy and healing and boundary setting. And there were a lot of my family members that didn't. And I didn't want to, I didn't go through all that fighting and all that healing and all that boundary setting just to interject my kids into that same world. So I didn't want, they were never left alone with her. Like, you know, she wasn't allowed to watch them and I had certain rules for myself where I wouldn't pick up the phone after a certain amount or after, I'm sorry, after a certain time of day because she, I knew that she, you know, she was on opioids and then she was drinking. And then like, you know, she would call me to deal with one of my siblings that really has nothing to do with me as an adult now, but she would call me because she knew that my siblings looked to me as more of a mother figure than even her. So it was just very strained in that sense. So when I became the executor of her state, I find out that she's also a hoarder. Like her house was like just tons Mm -hmm. of stuff, tons of bugs. And, you know, we're talking cat pee and just all over the place. Just unsafe. Unsafe. So I wound up having to clean, not just clean out the house, but then having to like repaint the house and get it ready for sale and all this other stuff. So I think in dealing with all that, what wound up happening was going through all of her stuff. I found definitive proof that my mom knew all along. The abuse that I was going through as a child. And I think as a mother, it just literally hit me so to my core that I had to physically remove myself from the area that I was brought up in and everything that happened in. And I needed a fresh start. And I needed to distance myself from certain siblings that were not in a place where they had even held like nobody showed up to help me clean out the house except for a couple siblings, one or two days. I have a sister-in-law who I don't even call sister-in-law. She's my sister because she showed up every single day, helped me clean out the house, scrubbed walls and tore up carpet that were full of cat pee and helped me do all that. So, you know, I know where my loyal people are and I know the people that I can trust who they are and where they are. And I think I just needed physical distance at that point between me and all everything that happens between my mom and all that stuff. So, we um we picked up and we moved to an island um and really didn't tell anybody. We we told a couple handful of friends that we were moving and it's like, okay, this is what we're doing. And it was like, okay, here we are. And it was probably the best decision my family has ever made because it helped us to really heal from everything that had happened. And but then I got cancer. So yeah. <laughs> That has been probably the hardest part about being so far away from everybody that we love and we trust because now it's like, now is when you really need your support system and they're yeah. just so far away.
0: Yeah. In looking at the, pro- cause the whole cancer stuff, like this happened so fast. Like it fit on the, on, on the outside as like a viewer, it just seemed like everything, it just progressed so fast. I mean, it was February when you yep. got the diagnosis, but yep. in in the confusion as to what was going on with your body, you had like like liters of fluid around your heart. Like, Can you describe the process of like feeling like something is off and like trying to figure out what was going on at that point?
1: Yeah, sure. So I actually had doctors that completely dismissed what I was feeling and what I was going through. So I had a lymph node on the side of my neck here that I could feel. And I was like, that's kind of weird. It's like a pea-sized lymph node. And in January, I got really sick and like really sick, like thought I had the flu, thought I had something, some kind of bug. I got tested for COVID. I got tested for the flu. I got tested for pneumonia, like anything that you could think of, I was tested for. And they're like, you don't have any of these things. And then my anxiety attacks were getting progressively worse and more frequent. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, I'm having another panic attack. I'm like, it's really hard for me to breathe. And I know what a panic attack is because I know I have PTSD like from my childhood and from my upbringing. So I know what that feels like, but this was a little different. And I remember in like, towards the end of January, just being so sick and literally in the bathroom, dry heaving, thinking I'm dying because I was like there's literally nothing else in my body. I don't know what else to do I called my doctor and I was like, hey you know I'm getting sick but nothing is coming up quite literally feel like my insides are going to come out it's like a weird feeling Can you describe um,
0: that a little bit more they feel yeah, like they're gonna so, come out
1: you know and it's like it's it's kind of more of like when you know when you're dry heaving you yeah. kind of have that point where you're getting sick and kind of everything just like stops because you're dry heaving it's like a forceful whatever yeah. Mine just kind of felt like it was like almost trying to push through that. It's weird. as that might sound? Um, But that was kind of like the point that I was at where like, I thought that I was dying when I was dry heaving. So our plan was my husband at the time, because my child, my one daughter actually was sick and she had just like a normal stomach bug. So I'm thinking to myself, this has got to be it. I just must have picked this up from her. And this is what I have. Uh, but I wasn't able to keep fluids or food down for almost three days. So I was like, okay, now I need to go to a hospital. So he dropped me off at the hospital because we still had a kid who was sick. and so we couldn't come in with me. So I walk in thinking, I'm going to get some IV fluids. I'm going to be great. I'm going to, you know, leave after this. So my heart rate was really high. And there was something else that like kind of ticked them off that something wasn't right. So they wound up doing an ultrasound on my heart. I think that was like the major thing was my heart rate it was like kind of through the roof. So, they did a scan on my heart and they noticed that there was an, um, like a mass amount of fluid around my heart. And they're like, okay, she needs an emergency surgery. We need to drain this fluid. It's actually kind of a common thing. I didn't know this that people would get fluid around the space in their heart. And there's a procedure called a pericardial effusion where they make a tiny little cut, basically in the sac around your heart, not, not your actual heart, but the sac that's around your heart. And it drains all the fluid and it goes away and it's totally fine. And you like walk out of the hospital in a day or two. Mm -hmm. That was not the case for me. The fluid kept coming back and it kept like filling back up. And they're like, what the heck is going on? This is so crazy. So I think it was during one of the CAT scans or I'm sorry. Yeah. I think it was a cat that they saw that I had like masses in my chest area and the hospital, because I am on an Island that I'm, that I went to, wasn't super great. Like it was like a kind of like an urgent care. Wasn't like really super prepared to deal with what I was going through. So they did have to transfer me to a bigger hospital at that time. And then that's when I found out they came in in and they said, you know, basically you have malignancies and and you have cancer. And because of the cancer, that was what was causing the fluid to fill up around my heart. So it was a direct result of that
0: Why is that a direct result though? Like what about the fluid is connected to the cancer?
1: So I don't know exactly what like the term is, but I know just like side effects. So I have lymphoma. Mm -hmm. So it's basically cancer of the lymph nodes that are around your organs. So I don't have cancer of my lungs or of my heart, but I do have cancer around my heart and in my heart and around my lungs and around basically all my major organs, like above my belly button. Um, So one of the side effects of lymphoma is you sweat when you're sleeping, like excessively. Ugh. And I had been doing that and I just thought I was like a really sweaty sleeper. I was like, okay, like I just sweat a lot when I'm sleeping. Yeah, I'm just a and sweaty remember, sleeper. That's a thing. Yeah, and I remember Googling it and it literally said, if you sweat a lot when you're sleeping, it's one of these three things, you, oh, one of them is cancer. You
0: always end up with cancer when you Google your symptoms. Your you always symptoms. have
1: cancer. So I literally said, there's no way I have cancer. Like that can't be a thing. And so the the fluid building up around it had something to do with like your hormones and the lymph nodes that it was like overproducing fluid and was filling up. So like normally you have one to 200 milliliters of fluid around your heart that's naturally there for like to make so that there's no friction between your heart and the sac that it's in. I had a thousand milliliters of fluid. That must have that. felt
0: so heavy.
1: It's You know what? I have a very high pain tolerance. So yeah. this is actually what's scary is when I went in for, when I went in for my fluids, to you know, get rid of my flu. Um, they basically said, we don't know how you're dead because having a thousand milliliters of fluid around your heart is essentially like putting in like a vice mm-hmm. and it was like squeezing your heart. So it couldn't contract the way that it was supposed to. And they're like, we don't know how you're not dead. Like you should be dead. Like there's nowhere for your heart to go in mm-hmm. terms of it pumping and I was like, I don't know, but then when they did the emergency surgery, they drained all this and it was like, this is what it was. It was just so incredible. Just the way everything happened, the chain of events was just so amazing. You
0: have a lifetime of being battle tested though. So your heart was, like, your heart was ready to go through it.
1: Yeah. And I think it was because I have a very high like pain tolerance that I didn't really notice it. I was acknowledging it as a panic attack, mm. not as there's something severely wrong here because I do have that high pain tolerance. So
0: yeah. How do you break that news to your family? What Can you describe that moment for me?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I was in the hospital and I was not allowed to leave the hospital because they biopsied. Essentially what they did was they wound up giving me surgery to do the pericardial effusion. So to put that little hole there so the fluid could drain. When they did that, they also did a biopsy. So they said, when you're on the table, we're going to take a piece of This, whatever is in you, because they didn't know at the time for sure that it's cancer. And they can't throw the C word out there if they don't know for sure Mm -hmm. that it's cancer. So they said, we're going to take a piece when you're on the table. If it looks like cancer under a microscope, they have a guy in the, in the OR that kind of just like kind of eyeballs and says like, for sure, this is like, you know, not a normal cell. They said, you're going to wake up with a port, which I don't know if you can tell. Yeah. It's in my chest. It
0: makes it easier for them to access. Yes.
1: So this is where i get my chemo so they said if you wake up and you have a port you have cancer so that's how i found out is i was on the table something feels something feels
0: ick about that i don't know what that just rubbed me the wrong way like oh surprise you know and it's like requiring you as the person with cancer to like notice for yourself i don't know so
1: it's literally the first thing i said when i woke up from anesthesia i don't even think i was like all the way awake and i was like do i have a port in me and they said yeah and I just remember like immediately start crying and then I was crying like for myself. And I was also crying for my husband because I know he was out in the waiting room and the nurse that came out to tell him how the surgery was going was like, okay, like they're wrapping it up. There's only like, you know, maybe 20 minutes to go. They're just see, you know, they're uh, stitching up where they put the port and then she'll be good to go. And that's how they said it because the nurse didn't know that we didn't know for sure that it was cancer. So that's how he found out that I had cancer because they were telling him that surgery of putting my port in was going Mm -hmm. well and that I was going to be done soon. So it's not like really any fault of the hospitals. Like I get why they did it. But the way that we were told was kind of like a little insensitive. But then like we had to tell my family while I was still in the hospital because what they found was that from the biopsy was that the cancer was so, it's so rare and aggressive that they don't have a name for it. So we were not allowed to leave the hospital before doing a round of chemo because it was spreading so quickly that like, I didn't have the time. So we had to FaceTime all of our family members and tell them over FaceTime, Hey, I have cancer. And this is why I've been in the hospital for so long. And this is why, you know, we haven't really said anything because we didn't, again, we didn't want to throw the C word out there if it's not cancer, but like they're telling us it might be cancer. So.
0: It's kind, of, kind what, of our story. How do you break it to kids?
1: That was really hard. Yeah. So it just so happened that it was my daughter's birthday around the time that I was getting my first chemo treatment. And kids are not allowed in hospitals right now. It's like a very big thing with COVID and stuff. So my kids could not even come visit me in the hospital. And when I was talking to, I want to say it was my mother-in-law on the phone. And one of the random nurses I was like in my room at the time like overheard me saying, and I was crying and I was saying like, I'm going to have to tell my freaking kids on FaceTime that I have cancer. And this is not a discussion that I want to have with my kids over FaceTime. So she arranged it so that my kids were able to be brought in like a back door basically. And we were put in this room where they threw her a birthday party. First of all, they gave her like a cake and pizza so that I could like celebrate her birthday with her. But then I was also able to tell them in person that I had cancer and It was probably the hardest thing for me to say, because my kids are younger, they're seven and they're nine. Immediately my nine-year-old starts crying because she's old enough where like she'll watch a movie and somebody has cancer. So she kind of knew sort of what that was. Her first question to me was, are you going to lose all your hair? Because I think that was the (laughs) only thing she was able to associate with like people have cancer, they lose their hair. And I was like, yeah, you know, I am going to lose my hair and stuff. So, I mean, there's nothing that can prepare you to tell people that you love that you have cancer. Um, but I'm very grateful that I have the kind of support system that I have because my mother-in-law was on the next flight out and we have tons of family and friends that were like, okay, tell me what you need. What can I do for you? So, you know, we do have that thankfully.
0: Yeah. And so you started the the chemotherapy and to my understanding, you you actually made it to the point of remission or no.
1: I did not. So we found out at my last chemo session, you have what's called a PET scan and it basically just scans your whole body and says, is there any cancer in here or is there not? And I finished my chemo sessions and did my PET scan. And they're like, we're really sorry to inform you that like one of the sections that was kind of glowing because it glows. That's how it tells you that that you have cancer. Um, One of the sections that was like kind of glowing in my previous PET scan was like definitively glowing like almost three times the amount that it was glowing on the scale that they have from the, from my previous scan. So they're like the chemo didn't work. So now we're trying to figure out a completely different treatment plan. Um, but do you remember that I told you that I had like a bomb that I wanted to drop on your. Yes,
0: go, go on.
1: (laughs) This kind of ties into that. Okay. So believe it or not, I didn't know this. This is like news to me because I've never had cancer before. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually rang the bell and I have video of me ringing the bell. And for me, when I was done with my last chemo session, she's like, you know, you're going to ring the bell. And I was like, well, I don't have my PET scan until after my last chemo. And I then I thought you only ring the bell when you don't have cancer anymore. And she said, that's not true. She said, you just did one of the hardest things, which is to complete the chemo. She's like, people ring the bell because they complete their chemo, not because they're in remission. They do it because they, you know, completed surgery for cancer. They do it because they had to come back because the cancer came back and they just want to ring the bell. She's like, they do it for all all sorts of reasons. She's like, you did it. You went through. And I had one of the most aggressive chemos that you could possibly have, which is why I'm so sick. And like, I lost my hair almost immediately. But she was like, you absolutely deserve to ring the bell, and I think that you should. And I did, so I have a video that I'm actually going to send to you. Okay. And I'm going to let you share, like, with your followers if you want to. Okay. Like I like, I haven't even shown my own followers yet.
0: Yeah. The video
1: of me like ringing the bell, but it was like such a powerful moment because it really did just like like give me the credit for going through that and having to do all of that, and it wasn't just like okay, I can only do this. If I won, because for me, I did win. I was able to get through it and I was able to survive just that part of it.
0: Yeah. And you, I mean, like, that's how you've lived your whole life. I hope you recognize that you've been ringing the bell since you were a kid. You know, you, you complete, you continue to push forward in the, in the face of odds that most people would crumble under. And so I'm glad that you got that opportunity. I think that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. But, but ultimately also like the chemo isn't doing what What it's it's supposed to to do. So what does that mean moving forward?
1: I'm going for surgery next week on Mm -hmm. Thursday Mm -hmm. and I have four hospitals right now. Some of the greatest hospitals and cancer centers working on my case specifically because they don't know what my kind of cancer is. Like usually when you have lymphoma, it's either Hodgkin's or it's non-Hodgkin's, generally speaking. And my cancer is just throwing them for a loop because it's showing both Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's characteristics. Mm. So they're like, what the heck is this? And Hodgkin's is like the, and I don't wanna say better because there isn't a better cancer to have, but in terms of like prognosis and diagnosis and like the way that they can treat it, Hodgkin's lymphoma is a little bit easier to treat and has a better prognosis versus non-Hodgkin. So right now I'm at the point where they're doing another biopsy of the cancer that's still there because they got rid of like 95% of it, the 5% that's still there. We want to see what that is and why that didn't go away. So the only way to do that is to take another piece of it, send it out to Sloan Kettering, which is one of the biggest and best cancer hospitals you know, in this country and see what they say it is to see if there's another way that we can treat it.
0: Have they given you any idea of the possibility or are they just kind of holding off until they get the information back?
1: The biopsy. Yeah. As we know from the biopsy.
0: How are you feeling about that? That's got to be really tough because it's It's like very uncertain.
1: Yeah. It's terrifying. So, you know, here I am thinking, I just have to get through chemo and then I'll be good. And then it was like, you get through chemo and it's like, you're not good and it didn't work. So now we have to, you know, adjust our sales and take a different course and see what we can do from here. And it's hard because I'm only 35 years old and I feel like my story is not done being written yet. And I really want a chance to live longer than the prognosis would be if this doesn't go the way that I want it to. So, you know, it's terrifying and it's sad. And, you know, this was not, this isn't something that anybody can plan for, but this was not a plan that me and my husband had in terms of us growing old together. And, you know, I want to be able to watch my kids walk down the aisle and I want to be able to hold my grandbabies if that's what they choose to do down the road. So, you know, it's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow.
0: Yeah. You seem to be taking, you've been sharing the whole time too. So like, yeah. do you, do you, uh, how much don't you share? Like, do you pretty much put it all out there or do you, you hold some stuff back for just you and your personal life?
1: I think getting cancer has helped remove like, which I already kind of didn't have a filter, but like, I think especially now I really don't because there just isn't the time to have one for me. It's you're here and you have an audience and they're listening to you and they want to learn from you and they want to, they want to see what's going on with you. And, you know, of course there's things I think predominantly about my children that I don't share because it's on my story to tell. And there's things about my siblings that I don't share again because it's on my story to tell. Um, but for the most part, I'm pretty, like, I'm a pretty open book. And, you know, yesterday you had messaged me because I was crying Mm -hmm. on my Instagram stories. And, you know, that's, that's just a very big part of it. Like, I don't want to show just, the Hey, I rang a bell and I'm good with cancer and like, everything is good. And chemo is so easy. And like, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff and like, I don't want to portray that because it's not easy and it's, it's really hard and it's very sad. And I want people to be able to see kind of how this is impacting my family because I know I'm not the only one going through this and I know cancer is such a big, you know, how many people in this world have it? So I want to be able to be a source of kind of comfort for people if they do wind up on my page.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you're speaking to it, it, you'll get responses from people, but for the most part, you're speaking to a silent mass that's out there that yeah. like just needs to hear what you say. But you'll ne- you're like a radio station. That's how yeah. I compare. I say what I am like. I put a message out. You don't know who it's going to impact, but you know that there's someone out there who gonna who's going to listen. Who needs to hear the words that you have to say. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to be conscious of your time. Um, I really love this. I knew this was going to be an easy conversation because yeah. we're both pretty pretty Same. open. Um, I want to rewind a little bit. Okay. Um, with what happened to you, um, in your childhood, if you are, if someone is listening right now and they might be struggling with something similar, but they don't know what the first step is, what would you tell them to do?
1: So most counties have a free crisis center that We'll give them free counseling, free advocacy for going to court if they need a PFA or if they need to file any paperwork, they have shelters, that sort of thing. Um, Rain.org, so Mm N.org is a fantastic resource to find the center in your county where you can go get free counseling. That has to be the place that you start because they're the ones who are going to not only be able to listen to you and validate what has happened to you, but also provide you with the resources that you need to move forward if it is that you want to seek justice. Mm -hmm. Some people don't. And that's actually like something that I've learned and um, kind of had to like be open about when people would message me on Instagram or on TikTok and they're telling me like, you know, I said something, but I don't want to do anything about it. I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to go to court. I don't want it to be a big deal. You know, I'm some people will say, like, you know, I'm 60 years old or I'm 70 years old and I just don't even want to open this bag of worms or, you know, maybe the statute of limitations in their state has already passed, um, which is really sad that that even exists. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe something happened to them when they were 15 or 10 years old, but now it's 20 years later and they don't have any recourse for getting the justice that they want. Um, So having a resource center that focuses on helping people that are in crisis in that specific area of their lives is super, super helpful.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now say someone is your story. Is so, so layered. So I'm trying to like help as many people as possible. Say yeah. somebody is diagnosed with cancer and your cancer is uh, super rare. Like you said, yeah. like a hundred, 200 people a year, get it. A
1: couple hundred people who like, they've seen something similar. They haven't even seen like my exact yeah. kind of cancer like what it's showing on the biopsies but like it's similar enough that they can like say about 300 people a year maybe wow yeah
0: so say someone they've been diagnosed with cancer it's obviously really rattling what is some what's some guidance that you could give them that will help them um not spiral in that, like, I mean, you're going to spiral to a certain degree, but like can help keep them grounded or like an attitude that they can look towards or like, you know, how do you help someone understand how to process those moments?
1: So I think the best piece of advice that I've received so far with having a cancer diagnosis was somebody told me, say yes. If somebody asks you, do you need something? What can I do for you? You know, can, can I help you in any way? Your answer is always yes. It's never no. So I've had to learn that and that's really hard for me because I'm so independent and given what I've grown up from, I'm not used to other people taking care of me, which is really hard for me to give that control and that space to somebody else to take care of me because I'm always the one taking care of other people. So whether it's like, I will give my kids even just like little jobs, like can you put ice into my cup and can you do little things for me? But I think giving up a portion of like, you have, to give, you have to give up some level of control mm-hmm. because you are not in control anymore. Like I, I am to a certain extent, but I'm not like the cancer is what the cancer is. Like, there's nothing that I'm going to do about that. I can only focus on the way that I'm going to react to it and the way that I'm going to live my life with the cancer and then ask for the cancer. So um, say yes, say yes. To anytime somebody says, do you need help? Or, you know, can I do something for you? And that's hard for me. And I'm still learning to say mm-hmm. yes. I think especially because I have so many people who want to do things for me, but they're so far away. So it's like, you really can't do anything from that far away because like, I can't tell you to make us a dinner or to stop by and like, help me clean my house or throw a little laundry in or something like that. But you know, say yes, take the help.
0: Yeah. I'm also not good at accepting uh, help. It's I, What is that? Why is that so hard? Maybe, yeah. I, I guess I it's feel weird behavior. Yeah maybe. yeah, maybe. Yeah. So for, for me, Um, something that I don't know, hopefully this is not weird for me to say something that like, I'm so proud of within you is Mm -hmm. your ability to continually push forward in the face of incredible odds. But beyond that, you also use that opportunity, you turn your pain into purpose, you, you take that situation and then you use it to help other people. And you, and that's something like when I, when I look at you, that inspires me. Yeah. What's something about you? that you're proud of?
1: That's a good question.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, let me think on that one for a second because it's yeah. a really good question. Something about me that I'm proud of. Um, I'm gonna cry. It's okay. I'm proud, okay. That I'm, I'm proud that I'm here. Yeah. I'm proud that I'm here. Yeah. Because it's been really hard and I think a lot of people might've given up like a little sooner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I don't want to because I don't think that my story is done. Yeah. I don't want it to be so, and that has to be a choice that I make and it's got to be a choice that I say to myself that I'm not going to let this be the thing that takes me out. Like I have been through some shit. Like this can't be the thing <laughs> I know that doesn't me like, mean
0: you'd already been through so much. And then you get cancer. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. What is the yeah. plan? <laughs> What's the deal with that? oh?
1: Yeah. Like, you know, they say like, there is that saying, and I love, I love the, I love the intention of it. But when people say like, you know, God gives his hardest battles to his Best soldiers you know what like I'm I'm good like I'm I'm soldiered enough like I I'm I'm prepared I have trained I need no more training I'm good yeah
0: mercy please no more lessons I'm lessened up there's got to be someone else who could use some of these lessons so why don't you give them to them for a little bit I need I need a break
1: I've had quite a few yeah
0: (laughs) but you but like I said you continue to push forward and that's that's uh that's really inspiring yeah. Um, so, okay. So if people want to reach out to you, where are the, what's the best way to do that?
1: So right now, TikTok is really awful with like their messaging system. I feel like.
0: Yes. That's why <laughs> I messaged you both on TikTok yeah. and on Instagram. I was like, yeah. well, she responds or she doesn't.
1: Yes. So if you have a message you want to send me, find me on Instagram. If you want just like entertainment of content, then find me on TikTok or find me on both. Mm-hmm. And then my website, klorandis.com. I do have like a section where people can email me. I have my email address there. So people need to reach out to me in that way. Then they can too.
0: Mm-hmm. And you you have a GoFundMe as well?
1: I don't have a GoFundMe. So oh. that's actually really interesting. Okay. I have a donation section on my website. Where people okay. can do me, And we are using it. Um, something that I did on purpose was, People immediately were like, start a GoFundMe, we want to donate to you. And I have such a loyal following and I love them for it, but I didn't want to, I'm not in a position where I quote, need people's money and it bothers me to take money from people if I don't need it. So what I found was six months later, now I'm comfortable saying, okay, if you want to donate, we're gonna use it for food. We're gonna use it for takeout. We're gonna use it for hotels that we have to go stay at because we're driving, you know, three hours away to a better hospital. We're gonna use it for planes to get my mother-in-law here if I'm going for surgery, that kind of stuff. I'm comfortable talking, like accepting that now because I very quickly saw how fast cancer can dwindle your savings. Mm. And my husband and I have worked so hard to build that up from nothing. Cause we were both poor and we were both homeless that I don't want to see all of my savings be depleted because of something like cancer. So I'm more than willing to let people donate because they want to mm-hmm. to something like this. So I put it on my website, um, not a GoFundMe and it's actually because of my family, because I don't want people to see how much money people are giving me ah. because I do have certain family members that are addicts. Mm. that have issues with that kind of stuff that I don't even want them to see. Like, cause you can see like on a GoFundMe, like, Hey, you just, you know, this person has $25,000 or this person has this amount of money. And I don't even want it to be a subject that I bring up or that my, that my family members bring up mm. because they're like, Oh, you've got all this money now that we can like, you know, potentially beg you for or ask for um, the, the bank of Kelly Randis. Um, <laughs> closed a really long time ago with my family so i just Mm -hmm. don't want to reopen it that's all
0: that sounds like a wonder do you guys like do you guys do like credit cards like i saw i'll sign up for the bank of kelly randis
1: yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a great thing. It's a great
0: thing. hopefully and it has cute, service. cute credit cards though, with like fun layouts on it and stuff like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I did say like I have like two or three questions from my yes. Patreon people. Are you down to do those questions? Okay. Yeah. okay, so if any of you are ever interested in asking questions to the people I have on Unfiltered mm-hmm. Friends, um, go over to Patreon. That's one way to support the podcast, as well as get behind the scenes and get more access to the people that I interview. So patreon.com slash unfiltered friends and kelly thank you so much for this like i i know that you're you got a lot going on so you being willing to give me some of your time i don't take that for for granted so thank thank you What an incredible interview. What an incredible person. Make sure you guys reach out to her and let her know how impactful she is and give her all the support in the world. She is KL Randis everywhere. If you'd like to donate to her, klrandis.com. And also make sure you're supporting Unfiltered Friends by following, rating, leaving a review, sharing it with your friends. And until next week, this has been Unfiltered Friends.